Welcome to the Davos in the Desert podcast series. My name is Mark Oliver and I am the producer of the Davos in the Desert podcast series. Our podcasts feature thought leaders in business and public policy. Our sessions are meant to be informative and thought-provoking. The topic of this session is the weaponization of medicine, and our guest is Dr. Robert Malone. Dr. Malone is one of the world's preeminent virologists, a founder of mRNA technology and the author of Lies My Government Told Me and the Better Future Coming. Without further ado, here is David Wanatik, the CEO of Davos in the Desert and the host of our podcast series. Welcome to Davos in the Desert, everyone. My name is David Wanatik, the CEO of Davos in the Desert. Uh, very pleased to introduce our speaker today, Dr. Robert Malone. Uh, Dr. Malone is credited with being one of the original inventors of mRNA vaccination as a technology, DNA vaccination, and multiple non-viral DNA and RNA, mRNA platform delivery technologies. He has approximately 100 scientific publications with over 12,000 citations of his work. Um, he's been a, a speaker in over 100 conferences, and uh, he's, he's very well known now. So, Dr. Malone, thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure. So um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about when you started the research for mRNA. Okay, uh, first off, uh, there are those who assert that I claim to have invented our mRNA, but mRNA is an acronym. It stands for messenger ribonucleic acid. It's a fundamental biomolecule. And if, every, if anyone is going to claim credit for the invention of mRNA, I guess it would have to be God. Uh, I, I did not invent that uh, molecule. Uh, the reference is to a suite of technologies that I developed and then had uh, nine issued patents on involving the production of mRNA in large quantities in a test tube or in vitro. In uh, its purification, characterization of the genetic sequences necessary to add into the open reading frame. Sorry, this is a little technical. Um, so the structure of the RNA necessary to make it useful for delivery into cells, and the uh, technology for uh, actual delivery into cells and tissues involving positively charged fats. Much of that delivery technology was developed at a company called Syntex initially, and uh, but they were unable to make mRNA work. They were able to make DNA work. And uh, it was only when I received their reagent together with what I'd already developed and discovered in terms of the molecular biology uh, that allowed the demonstration that one could use RNA as a drug to uh, produce a gene therapy-like response. I was working in a gene therapy lab at the time at the Salk Institute. Uh, and then um, the testing of that combination in a variety of different cell types, then in frog embryos and chick embryos, and then in mice, and then the subsequent discovery that you could also do this even without the positively charged fat in mice and use this not only to get protein expression, but also to generate immune response against those proteins. And the initial reduction to practice was done with both influenza proteins for vaccines in a mouse model. 
as well as with AIDS proteins for vaccines in a mouse model. So my role was the uh, core set of, of technology inventions that, and as well as the idea of using that suite of technology uh, reductions to practice for both uh, gene therapy or genetic medicine purposes and for uh, vaccine purposes. I played absolutely no role in the uh, current development of the current vaccine products. They are based on those inventions of 1989 to 1991. Uh, but uh, there have been improvements or modifications to that technology. And one of the key ones is the incorporation of a molecule called pseudouridine into the mRNA which creates an artificial molecule that's different from the one that I was working with. It's a pseudo-mRNA that has different properties. It is immunosuppressive. That's why it was done. And it has a very long half-life. So there's the quick summary. Okay, great. Thank you. So it seems that uh, research began on mRNA about 30 years before there was a rush to produce vaccines to target COVID-19. Uh, true. That and there was an, a group of issued patents that were sold to Merck, and uh, they covered both the use of DNA and mRNA. And Merck elected Merck vaccines to only focus on the DNA application, and they spent over a billion dollars on that and failed to develop a vaccine product using DNA. But what they did do was keep anyone else from developing an mRNA vaccine product through legal challenges until the, back, until the uh, patents expired. And then when the patents expired, you suddenly had a number of companies jump in, CureVac, BioNTech, and Moderna. Um, and uh, the CIA jumped in with major funding through DARPA to push this initiative forward to develop mRNA for gene therapy purposes, essentially, including vaccines. So before 2020, were there any mRNA uh, products or vaccines available on the market and in inserted into to people? Not into people. Uh, it's unclear if Merck had deployed an animal mRNA vaccine prior to that point in time. They're not really fully transparent about what they've done in animal health, but there it appears they may have uh, been doing animal research involving mRNA vaccines. Merck may have. Uh, Merck obviously not being one of the parties involved in the human mRNA vaccine development, but they may have done so in animals. There was attempts to develop uh, mRNA-based products by, in particular, Moderna and clinical trials, particularly for cancer. And those had all failed, largely due to toxicity reasons, prior to uh, um, 2020. Okay, so prior to 2020, no people had mRNA uh, technology uh, inserted into their, their bodies. No, they, they had, they had, there had been some clinical trials testing this technology uh, which had failed largely due to toxicity problems. Okay. So there had been some humans tested in uh, clinical trials uh, early on. 
Okay, so main okay mainly failed to be commercialized because of toxicity. Um, and you can find the documentation about that um, in uh, there's a publication out of Boston called Stat News. And so if you search uh, Stat News and Moderna and mRNA, you'll bring up a story about these prior failures of Moderna in uh, development of mRNA based products. Okay. Uh, so to to recap, the mRNA technology was initially explored around 1989, 1990. In that time frame, about 30 years before uh, vaccines were produced targeting COVID, there were some uh, human trials that uh, were largely not successful because of toxicity issues uh, with the the mRNA technology. Uh, that's all correct. Okay, so um, we 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 got the the COVID uh, nineteen virus uh, two thousand twenty um, under the Trump administration. Lots of efforts were made to put vaccines on the markets. You know, I think everyone involved made a heroic effort. I think the the motivations of the virologists, all the researchers, you know, must have been you know uh, very very good. You know, trying to save humanity. Um, the, the process, you know, by definition was rushed. Uh, it had to be, you know, the thinking was that you need to put a vaccine on the market. Um, what, what evidence is, is there that the toxicity issue was corrected in that short period of time between when the trials were failing because of toxicity and between when the COVID vaccines came out? Uh, to the best of my knowledge, the current data show that those uh, were not resolved. Uh, there was a belief in the literature and in the field among my former peers that uh, they had identified positively charged fats in these formulations, catanic lipids, that would uh, cause these products to remain localized to the site of injection and the associated draining lymph nodes, and thereby eliminate or reduce the toxicity associated with systemic spread. Um, it appears that that uh, belief was naive uh, and that it was not based on sufficient data, uh, but perhaps was more of a hope than it was a proven fact. But that, that was the belief uh, published in the literature and in the field. I, I contacted some of my old colleagues early on in this, uh, particularly from University of British Columbia, which uh, has done most of the advanced work to enable this technology to work in humans, including the use of uh, polyethylene glycol uh, in the formulations to keep the products from aggregating. And I spoke with them about what had been done and what they, uh, what the thesis was for how this is working and why it's working better than it was previously. And a lot of that is wrapped around the belief system that these products uh, exclusively would remain at the site of injection and the draining lymph nodes. And you'll remember that was the storyline that we were told early on, that physicians were told by the pharmaceutical industry and by the US government that these products remain localized. But when the Pfizer common technical document that was submitted to Japan 
was obtained from a Japanese regulatory server by Byron Bridal, it became clear that the actual data that they had was very different from that belief system. Uh, and that's been a story all the way along, is that uh, as, as stated by Deborah Burks and Rochelle Walensky, uh, they had hoped that these products would work in the way that they were proposed and intended, but they did not have data demonstrating that to be the case. And that's now been verified repeatedly. So what we had was a series of, of statements that were based on hope that, for instance, the mRNA was very short-lived in the body of the recipient. We now know that that's absolutely not true. These pseudo-mRNAs remain in the body for an extended period of time, appear to continue to be active for um, months, uh, and we really don't know the total dur duration. And they absolutely distribute all over the body and according to Pfizer's own data, seem to have a particular affinity for, among other organs, ovaries. So the, the problems that we're now seeing as a result of uh, people taking these vaccines, um, a, lot of, a lot of complications are arising. It, it, are the complications primarily a function of the toxicity profile of the mRNA or uh, mRNA um, changing the, the genes? I'm not aware of any data except for a very small number of studies in a very artificial cell culture system about mRNA actually changing the genome. Uh, when you say mRNA changing genes, what I hear and interpret is the thesis that the mRNA can get all the way into the nucleus with reasonable efficiency be reverse transcribed or otherwise interact with the genome, the DNA, and cause genetic modifications that are uh, heritable to those cells. Um, there is data supporting that that is a possibility, a rare possibility, in a, some very artificial systems involving cultured cells, particularly cultured cancer cells, particularly cultured cancer liver cells, okay, HEPG2 cells. But is there any evidence that that is a mechanism for clinically significant toxicity? I've not seen that evidence. That so, said, that said, <clears throat> there absolutely is toxicity associated with the components of the, for the moment, let's focus on the mRNA vaccines. Uh, just to introduce some language, the mRNA encodes, in other words, it has the information necessary to cause your cells to manufacture the spike protein. <clears throat> this is the spike protein from the virus itself, from the genetically engineered virus that was released, apparently inadvertently, from the Wuhan lab, okay? So it's the, it manufactures those, those uh, vaccines that encode uh, spike from Wuhan 1, which includes the current boosters, are expressing the same exact protein that the virus expresses, except for there's two single amino acid mutations. They are prolines that have been substituted, which cause that spike protein to be more immunogenic. But they involve parts of the spike protein that has nothing to do with its 
functional activities, it's binding activities for ACE2, TMPRSS, or these other cellular proteins that it interacts with. Okay, so those two proline mutations were not introduced to make spike lex toxic, which is something that the fact checkers had said originally, but rather were introduced to make spike protein more immunogenic. Now, in addition to the spike protein, just to go through the nomenclature so we can talk, we can call the spike protein sequences the payload. Then there is the composition of matter, the chemical structure of the pseudo-RNA. Okay, so we'll just call that pseudo-RNA. And then there is the package of positively charged fats and other fats together with cholesterol and uh, polyethylene glycol. For the chemists that are listening, if there are any, that's polyethylene glycol with a short acyl side chain that's made so that the polyethylene glycol will drop off of the particle after injection. Okay, so those are the components of the delivery technology, okay, is positively charged fat that's synthetic um, and a novel compound, uh, uh, dialalyl phosphatidyl ethanolamine, which is a fusogenic natural lipid, uh, and uh, cholesterol and polyethylene glycol with the nasal side chain. Those are the core components. So the final formulation has the pseudo-mRNA encoding the payload spike, as well as these lipid and other chemical components, which self-assemble to form a particle of variable size and variable amounts of RNA in it, just to get it clear. Now you have the picture. Now, what is the toxicity associated with? The toxicity is associated with all three components. Okay, actually, and even subcomponents of the, the delivery complex. So first off, the simplest, the polyethylene glycol. In some people, they have a hypersensitivity, immunologic hypersensitivity to polyethylene glycol. In those people that have that, they can go into shock and potentially die quite quickly after injection due to their relatively rare, but still occurring, hypersensitivity to polyethylene glycol. So that's one form of toxicity. That's the people that die immediately almost. Then there is the um, uh, toxicity associated with spike protein, the encoded payload. So that only kicks up after the RNA gets into the cells and starts making the protein, the spike protein that's made in the virus. The spike protein in the virus is a toxin. It's a toxin when it's made by the virus. It's a toxin when it's made in caterpillar cells like Novavax and then purified and injected into you. It's a toxin when it's made by an adenovirus vector, such as AstraZeneca vaccines um, or J&J, &J, Janssen vaccines here in the United States. And it's a toxin if it's made by the mRNA. It is intrinsically toxic, that protein. Then there's also toxicity associated with the pseudo-mRNA. The pseudo-mRNA has unusual properties that are still not really well understood. Um, pseudouridine is immunosuppressive. That's the reason it was included into the mRNA 
because these complexes were highly inflammatory. And so it was found if you included pseudouridine in them, then they would be less inflammatory and you would get more protein expression. But it comes at a price. It also suppresses other forms of immune response. Okay, so it messes up your immune response system. So that's the pseudouridine containing mRNA has intrinsic toxicity, which is not well characterized or understood. Then the uh, I mentioned the polyethylene glycol has toxicity. The catenic lipids in formulation, when they're added to the mRNA, seem to be particularly toxic and inflammatory. And this is the reason why I had abandoned the technology in the 90s when I was still working on it. Uh, and also the company called Genzyme that had produced hundreds and hundreds of these positively charged compounds and tested them because they were trying to develop gene therapy for cystic fibrosis. And they concluded that they could, they and I both concluded in my laboratory that we could never get around the toxicity, the inflammatory response associated with these complexes. So that's a long-winded answer to your question, where's the toxicity coming from? The answer is it's coming from every one of those components. All right. Was there any major improvement in, uh, in, in reducing the toxicity load of mRNA vaccines from the fall of 2020 to January of 2021? I, I'm not aware of any such experiments or any such data. It was all rushed right out the door based on the existing technology circa 2019. As, uh, the reason why I ask in the, the specific time frames is because um, during the presidential debates of 2020, both uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris said they wouldn't take the vaccine when it was being developed under the Trump administration. And then in January of 2021, when they took office, they were basically forcing people, pressuring people with loss of jobs and, and so forth, if they didn't become vaccinated. So I'm just trying to figure out what, what changed their mind that uh, vaccines were bad and then, then it was so good that everybody had to take them. I invite you to get them on your podcast and ask them that question. Uh, they don't chat with me and I'm not a mind reader, so I have no way of knowing. But, but to your knowledge, there was no major breakthrough uh, from September of 2020 to January of 2021 that would have given some, we're supposed to follow the, 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 the science, right? We're supposed to there, just there follow was no, the science. The, the, there is no way technically, so what, what you're not understanding is the nature of the regulatory process. If, if there had been a major change in technology that yielded a new formulation, that would be considered a new drug. And it would have had to go all the way back through the regulatory process. And there was absolutely no uh, interest uh, and no activity uh, consistent with that. In fact, what has been done by pre-agreement uh, in a meeting that was managed at the World Health Organization and chaired by Margaret Liu, formerly of Merck. Uh, the decision was that these formulations would not be changed 
and the FDA would functionally grandfather them in so that you could, that a developer who owned the intellectual property could switch in any mRNA sequence using the same formulation to produce a new vaccine or a new drug product. So the formulations were locked in, in a regulatory sense, in an administrative sense, in uh, um, 2019. Okay. Was uh, so Pfizer. My understanding is Pfizer had their vaccine ready to put on the market, but there was political pressure not to put it on the market because uh, that could help the Trump administration. Um, is there any scientific reason that it was important to for Pfizer to wait another several weeks or another month? Um, in October, November of 2020, uh, you know, was, was there a scientific reason to delay the launch of the Pfizer? Okay, you, you have, a, there's another misconception in what you've just said. Pfizer does not market that product, nor does Moderna market their product in the United States. There is no licensed vaccines available in the United States. That's all a, a shell game. Okay. Pfizer and Moderna and BioNTech by extension, because it's really BioNTech's technology and Pfizer has just licensed it. Um, they have made a cor corporate decisions not to market the products in the United States. And rather, what they have is an agreement with the U.S. government that they have a sole purchaser, the U.S. government, who purchases a emergency use authorized product, not a licensed product, and which does the marketing and distribution. The US government owns these products. Pfizer and BioNTech and uh, Moderna do not. Um, outside of the US, they are marketing the licensed product, but they do not market them in the United States. And apparently the reason is because that would incur obligations to perform additional clinical studies that they don't want to perform and uh, which they have no reason to perform because they have a, a basically a perfect uh, customer. They have a customer with infinitely deep pockets that buys very large amounts of product as a sole pur purchaser and manages all the distribution and marketing. So there's no reason for Pfizer or BioNTech or Moderna to directly market into the US when that would incur additional liability and would require them to do additional clinical studies that they don't wanna do. So all of this chatter by the press that the what's available in the United States is the licensed product or what was delivered to service people, members of the US military and their uh, um, and other service providers associated with the US military and, the, and government employees, all of that is emergency use authorized product that has been purchased through a very unusual pathway called other transactional authority. So the government has chosen to use a contracting vehicle to purchase the product 
um, called an OTA or other transactional authority, which is very different from the federal acquisition regulations. Um, it's a special pathway that was developed just for the pharmaceutical industry. And it provides extraordinary protection in terms of liability, but it has a restriction. The products purchased under OTA can only be used for demonstration purposes. So the government, because it is purchased under an OTA, did not require Pfizer or Moderna to do the normal testing that would be required for products including vaccines, including gene therapies, the government contracted with Pfizer and Moderna to produce a test or demonstration product that did not go through the standard testing process and then is by contract terms restricted from use for anything other than a demonstration project, but the government basically waived that and deployed that test article that was not sufficiently characterized for human use, deployed it widely in uh, military personnel and in US civilians, and basically waived the clause that exists within the other transactional authority. So that's what happened. The core of what your thesis is that Pfizer made some corporate decision having to do with domestic US politics does not withstand scrutiny of what actually what the transactions were between Pfizer and the government. So when when were those agreements put in place that the government uh, has the ability to distribute the the drugs and those the the, the um, uh, other transactional authority contracts were issued in early 2020. So, and uh, were issued through the Department of Defense. So you'll recall at one point, Trump issued a all of DOD order that the entire Department of Defense was to be engaged in this project. And so for instance, Department of Defense personnel, US Army personnel actually were the managers of Operation Warp Speed. This is often overlooked, uh, but I know this to be a fact because I know those people personally and they've talked to me about what their tasks were and what they observed. So are, are, are you saying that um, the availability of vaccines was um, made available the first possible moment? There was no delay to wait after the elections by anybody? Uh, I am not aware, you know, Pfizer doesn't call me up and have me participate in their board meetings. Uh, I, I have I can only speak to that which I have seen documented as artifacts, um, and I absolutely refuse to speculate about people's intent or what they might have done or might have been thinking. I can only comment on what is what the documents demonstrate, and I'm not aware of any documents demonstrating that Pfizer delayed intentionally deployment of these experimental use authorized products under Trump or any for any other purpose. The products and their pathway was entirely under the control of Department of Defense and uh, FDA and CDC, as well as Homeland Security, because Homeland Security has a key role 
in the go, no go decision for EUA, but the EUA is granted by the Secretary of Health and Human Services. So the, this whole process was under the control of DOD, HHS, um, all the way through in terms of the product itself. The censorship and propaganda campaign was largely managed by DOD together with Department of Homeland Security and apparently uh, the intelligence community. Mm -hmm. Okay, I know there's there's other statements that we can find from politicians and uh, I think from the CEO of Pfizer himself. But um, anyway, maybe we can talk about um, the, the trials uh, of uh, the vaccines. Um, maybe you can talk a little bit about how they were condensed um, to, to achieve getting the products on the market as quickly as possible. And were young people proportionately included in those trials? Were pregnant women um, included in those trials on a proportionate uh, basis? So again, your, your question um, uh, um, makes assumptions about uh, typical phase one and two clinical trial structures for vaccines. Um, the normal pathway is that they are initially tested until demonstrated to be safe and effective uh, through phase two in healthy normal adults. And then after testing in healthy normal adults, then there's typic the typical pathway is step-down studies in age. So you would typically start with healthy normal adolescents and then juveniles and then children, and then infants. Okay, that's a normal pathway for a vaccine. And um, in parallel, studies are typically done phase one and limited phase two in special populations. Special populations would include immunosuppressed, typically elderly, and uh, um, pregnancy typically pregnancy later after there's been well-established safety profile. All of these data then can get combined into a phase three effort, and that may include more than one phase three trial typically. Um, in this case, uh, what was done is a very abbreviated, uh, basically combined phase one, two, as I see it. Um, that's a standard structure if you're trying to expedite things. And uh, there was apparently a, I'm not sure if the blind was broken or if the safety monitoring board made a decision based on antibody responses to determine that the vaccines were effective. And at the point when it made that determination that the vaccines were um, effective, then the trials were closed prematurely, and uh, the control group was then uh, vaccinated, okay? So this is the infamous, they destroyed the control group, which prevented any long-term uh, follow-up assessment, any rigorous ability to determine long-term safety because you had no longer had any control group. Um, various people have uh, 
made the assertion that this was an intentional effort to um, obscure these things, these endpoints. And uh, I, once again, I can't get inside Tony Fauci's head or uh, um, uh, Deborah Birx's head, but functionally, that's what occurred. Whether or not they intended that as the whole reason for stopping the trials prematurely, that is the consequence. Now, there were subsequent trials done um, at the uh, behest, and there were some, as I recall in those early studies, there were some pregnant women. Um, that study in pregnancy was very short term. It was only a couple of months. And it over-enrolled patients in the third trimester. Uh, and third trimester is a time when spontaneous abortions and birth defects are rare. So typically birth defects and spontaneous abortion effects are more predominant in the first and second trimester. And if you analyze the first and few, the relatively few first and second trimesters patients in that pregnancy study, it appears that there is a markedly increased rate of uh, spontaneous abortion. Uh, the problem with that is there is a sampling artifact in that they analyzed uh, um, uh, abortion, uh, abortions within that short window, uh, and they did not carry any of those pregnancies to term. It was a constrained uh, in time analysis, not anyway close to a rigorous study of toxicity in pregnancy or pregnancy risks. But on the basis of that study, um, the CDC unilaterally decided and the ACIP that these products were safe in pregnancy and recommended that they should be administered to pregnant women. This is a highly, highly unusual decision, unheard of. In vaccinology, pregnant women have always been highly protected and basically off limits for most vaccine studies. Um, what also happened in parallel is that, I believe it was Pfizer, it may have been Moderna, had at FDA insistence, initiated a formal trial of vaccines in pregnancy that was quite large, a few thousand subjects, and was gonna be well-structured and carried to term. But when the CDC unilaterally decided that this, these products were safe in pregnancy without having the data from the Pfizer trial, okay, um, not getting any input from that Pfizer trial, they just decided it was safe in pregnancy. Then Pfizer decided to stop the study. And uh, ostensibly that was because it was no longer ethical to have a control group of non-vaccinated pregnant women because the CDC had now made a formal determination that it was safe and it should be used in pregnancy. So the trial was closed uh, and the data, although that closed trial had accrued over 300 subjects, the data from those 300 subjects has yet to be analyzed, although it has been over a year since the trial was closed, which is rather suspicious. Um, 
And uh, that's all I can say. I, I know you can't get in anybody else's head, but um, there were two resignations of the senior most virologist at yeah, the, Marian uh, Gruber, the FDA. Uh, and I forget who the other one was. And they specifically, uh, they've now come out and specifically stated that they were objecting, their resignations had to do with their objecting to the process being used to basically railroad these products through the process and to circumvent a normal regulatory review, particularly on the second data package, which Pfizer had submitted. This is the one that Pfizer and the government sued to keep from being disclosed. You'll recall this is the one that was supposed to be kept private for 70 years, for which there's no precedence. That was the data package that Gruber and her associates had resigned over. Uh, and as you know, the courts finally forced that to be uh, disclosed. And that's been the subject of uh, the Naomi Wolf and et al. Um, investigations and those of many others that have revealed this huge library of known adverse events, uh, which Pfizer had reported and submitted to the FDA, but which the FDA denied um, were uh, clinically significant. Okay, yeah, that's a good point about the 75 years of confidentiality or secrecy of uh, the, 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 the results and side effects and consequences of, of vaccines so yeah, there's, no my, other, there's no other way to put it they attempted to hide that data so my understanding of of science you know very basically science is when somebody has a thesis they put the thesis out there for for review people are um afforded the opportunity to challenge whatever that thesis is and if people um, challenge it but are not successful in knocking down the thesis, the thesis stands in that science. If somebody has, you know, can disprove it, then then another track is is the right way to go. And, it that, seems and like what you've just what you've just recited is the version of science, quote unquote, that's taught at the undergraduate level. Okay. The truth is that science, as it's practiced these days, is big business. Um, particularly after the Bayh-Dole Act that made it so that scientists can profit from their inventions um, and acquire patents on their inventions and have ownership on those patents and derive revenue. It's completely transformed into something very different. It's, it's been transformed into a very aggressive, competitive landscape driven by power, prestige, and money. So, and this could be a big topic, but um, science was shut down. And the people that were in favor of the vaccine, they said, this is science. And Fauci said, I'm, I, I represent science, and this is the way it needs to be. And there is no dissent. Um, you know, anybody that... Um, Question vaccines was called the anti-vaxxer. They were deplatformed, uh, demonetized, uh, threatened. Uh, yeah. So the basis for this, the basis for this goes back to the proposition that it's necessary to have censorship in order to preserve democracy. It goes back to the proposition of uh, essentially Plato's noble lie, 
that it's acceptable for public leaders to lie to the populace uh, for the common good. And uh, the specific expression of this was the belief system that um, the vaccines number there's there's three core beliefs underlying all of this, all of which are false, all of which were the basis for the agenda 201 planning session that was held in the fall of 2019, almost exactly to the date of when the virus entered the population at Wuhan. Or potentially, in another theory, slightly later than the than the virus entered the population during the military games that were held in that region. Okay, so there's two there's different versions of the timeline, but uh, event 201 occurred in the fall of 2019, and event 201 was based on three core uh, uh, assumptions or axioms, we could call them. Um, one, that we would have a highly lethal coronavirus outbreak of a highly infectious coronavirus, highly lethal, highly infectious coronavirus outbreak. Um, uh, axiom number two, that we would have, we would be able to rapidly develop a, a safe and effective vaccine, which would be sufficient if administered to a large enough fraction of the population to provide herd immunity. Axiom number three, no existing drugs would be available that would treat the infection associated with this novel, highly lethal coronavirus. All three of those assumptions failed. But what happened was the planning that went into it, the plans that were developed were then deployed without ever reassessing them. And those plans were developed by people that were largely coming from a more authoritarian autocratic background, people in the intelligence community, people in the military, and others that are associated with them. So no surprise, those kinds of folks came up with a more authoritarian, totalitarian model for how to handle this and baked into the assumptions in the information management aspect of Event 201 was that there would be people who would object. Uh, there would be anti-vaxxers. The language that has been deployed was all developed during Event 201, okay? So what you had was basically press parroting pre-developed uh, um, storylines uh, or narratives that go back to event 201 and even earlier with this anti-vaxxer language, et cetera. But the problem is that number one, this is not a highly lethal virus. This is nowhere near anything close to Ebola. This is just barely a notch above seasonal influenza. And just like seasonal influenza, it has a particular tendency to attack the weak, infirm, and elderly. Okay, this is respiratory viruses do this. Um, now, the, our response was compounded by some medical mismanagement decisions. One was the use of high pressure ventilation, which was absolutely contraindicated in this disease. 
because the people that were treating it were frantic and they basically turned the knobs up on the ventilators trying to get the oxygen oxygen blood oxygen up in the patients and the use of remdesivir remdesivir is highly toxic and the disease that it causes remdesivir is very much overlapping with the symptoms of what was called covid early on such as kidney failure okay so basically we had a large fraction of that initial wave of deaths was the technical term iatrogenic or drug and physician induced through mismanagement. This is not a highly lethal virus and uh, the vaccines, once they were deployed, were not safe nor were they effective. And number three, uh, it turns out that physicians deploying existing drugs were able to reduce death rate to 98% uh, or greater survival in those that were uh, suffering from severe COVID or hospitalized or hospital, um, uh, you know, potential hospitalized COVID. So all three assumptions, drugs wouldn't work, vaccines were safe and effective, and this is a highly lethal virus upon which the government's response was based were all false. Uh, where was this event two zero one? Was that under the auspices of the World Economic Forum, or who who hosted? So, this event two hundred one was held in a uh, research institute at Johns Hopkins University. That's well known to be a CIA spook shop. Johns Hopkins has very close ties to the CIA, and it was funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the World Economic Forum. You can look it up, you can see the videos, it's all documented, this is not a conspiracy theory, anybody can find it. So, um, yeah, it seemed like uh, the medical professionals were more anti-vax than the general population. Um, you know, there were dozens of stories about nurses that didn't want to get vaxxed and, you know, lots of doctors don't, don't want to get vaxxed, so it, it would seem that you know, some attention should be paid to the average medical professional in deciding whether or not um, we get vaxxed. Maybe you can talk a little bit about any uh, doctors that were not only censored, but threatened with the, lo uh, the loss of their license. And then uh, the second thing you can talk about is HCQ. Um, uh, you know, that drug has been used okay, for so decades. Okay, so let's park hydroxychloroquine for a minute. Okay. and talk about the retaliation against physicians and other medical care providers. So uh, all of this uh, censorship, uh, defamation, gaslighting, um, uh, uh, and these other nefarious activities of trying to take physicians' licenses or remove their hospital privileges Etc. If they engaged in treatments, life-saving treatments that were not approved by the NIH, which traditionally has no role in regulating medicine or determining treatment protocols, by the Constitution, just to to put a pin in it, uh, by Constitution, any uh, rights not specifically granted to the federal government vest to the states. 
And that's always been the case with regulating the practice of medicine. The states have the authority to regulate the practice of medicine. Um, the AMA does not. Uh, the American Pediatric Association does not. The federal government does not. HHS does not. CDC and FDA do not. It's the responsibility of the states, okay? Um, and the federal government has overreached in this egregiously, and they've done so in part by threatening to withhold tax dollars. So that's how they play this game, just like they do with education and transportation. They say, you play by our rules or we won't give you your tax money back. And that's what they do with the medical industry and hospitals. Now, one of the things they did that was illegal is they mandated that hospitals stop providing elective procedures. And the problem with that, in the, the thesis was that hospitals would be, soon be overwhelmed with diseased and dead, and they needed every possible bed. Okay, that never manifested, that thesis, okay? except in a limited way, basically in New York City in a very short period of time. But for instance, when they built all those 10 hospitals, they never actually got used, okay? So the thesis was the hospitals were gonna be overwhelmed with the dead and dying. And so if we allowed elective surgical procedures, then that would uh, fill up hospital beds that otherwise might be available to treat this wave of diseased and dying that was anticipated. Um, and uh, um, furthermore, it would create a situation in which otherwise uninfected persons would be coming into hospitals that were full of infected persons, and so it would have spread the virus even more rapidly. The government, having done that, recognized that hospitals and medical systems are, are insolvent if they only rely on Medicare Medicaid funding. Okay, Medicare, Medicaid will not sustain the hospital system. It's sustained through elect elective procedures. Hospitals make all their profit on elective procedures. They don't make it on standard medical care. And so when the government said you have to stop the elective procedures, they basically said you will all go broke. At least that's the message that the hospital managers heard. And so the hospitals apparently said to the federal government, you've got to make it up to us in some way. So the federal government said, basically, I'm making this all simple and paraphrasing, but the federal government said, I've got a deal for you. Um, you know, I've, I've got a deal you can't refuse. I'm going to pay you extra for every single person that has a diagnosis of SARS-CoV-2 infection by PCR. Okay, now you recall that one of the things that happened from that is that everybody turned up the cycle number for their PCR testing so that they could declare people PCR positive because then they would get a check from the government. Anybody that came to the hospital or the medical system that was PCR positive for SARS-CoV-2 generated a check, and it's not a small check. And then if they were admitted to the hospital, whether they had a gunshot wound or whatever, or a cancer, if they were positive by PCR and they get put on a ventilator, then the hospital got another check. 
And if they were put on remdesivir, the hospital got another check. And if they died, the hospital got another check from the government. So you can figure out where this goes. Now suddenly the hospitals have an amazing perverse financial incentive from the federal government to declare people SARS-CoV-2 positive and to put them on the vent and to fill them up with remdesivir IV and cause renal toxicity. And if they die, oh well, that's another check, okay? So they have no incentive to keep people healthy. They actually have a financial incentive for them to die, okay? And that resulted in the United States having the worst or one of the worst mortality rates in the entire world. So just a couple of quick definitional questions. What does PCR stand for? And what are the uh, risks of um, remdesivir for people that don't need Polymerized it? chain reaction is what PCR stands for. Um, PCR is very, very sensitive to environmental contamination, sample contamination, and the conditions under which it's performed. It's usually used to identify things, not to diagnose things. Uh, this is the objection that Corey Mullis, who invented it, who got the Nobel Prize, had for how uh, Tony Fauci specifically was using PCR. He died early into the outbreak. And then what are the risks of prescribing remdesivir? Remdesivir is associated with, in particular, renal toxicity, but also pulmonary toxicity. So remdesivir was originally developed as an Ebola drug and tested as an anti-Ebola agent, and it was discontinued because it was so toxic. So at the time when this was being heavily prescribed and hospitals were incentivized to dispense it, um, it was known that it was very toxic. Absolutely. Was it ever taken off of the market or limited? In, in it's it's still trying? pushed in the United States, but most of the rest of the world does not use remdesivir. They have stopped its use okay. because of the toxicity. So um, we don't have a lot of time left, but maybe we could just talk about some of the um, good ideas that were out there, like uh, HCQ, perhaps you can give your, your opinion. Oh, yeah, hydroxychloroquine. Okay, so um, the uh, and I, I've known all the whole hydroxychloroquine story personally and spent time with them. Um, uh, there is a physician in France at the University of Marseille, uh, a very well-respected virologist, who um, pioneered the use of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin for treating uh, COVID disease. And he developed a case series of about 300 plus patients uh, and was a strong advocate for this. And then an enormous uh, press campaign was launched against him. Uh, and eventually he was forced to resign from uh, the university at Marseille. Uh, he he was the first champion of using that drug combination, but the use of hydroxychloroquine for treating SARS-1 was well known to be effective. And there's actually a manuscript with Tony Fauci as an author 
talking about the use of hydroxychloroquine as an effective agent for SARS-1, which is functionally the same as SARS-2 in terms of antivirals. Um, so uh, there's a history, and one of the things about hydroxychloroquine is it's relatively safe in pregnancy. Mm -hmm. um, I had actually once filed a patent on the use of hydroxychloroquine for uh, treatment of Zika virus because of its safety in pregnancy. But that company uh, collapsed. I couldn't get funding for it, and that's another story. So hydroxychloroquine has long been known as an antiviral. And um, various physicians in the United States started using it early on uh, after uh, the initial experience in France. And uh, in particular, uh, a, a relatively recently trained uh, Jewish physician, Orthodox Jewish physician, practicing on Long Island named Zev Zelenko, uh, began prescribing it and reporting good success. Zeb Zelenko wrote a letter to Donald J. Trump speaking about the effectiveness of hydroxychloroquine in his clinical practice. Mr. Trump made an executive decision to advocate in advance uh, a hydroxychloroquine as a treatment option and directed uh, Rick Bright who is at BARDA, um, to make hydroxychloroquine available throughout the United States and tasked Dr. Peter Navarro, an economist, with uh, the task of securing sufficient supply of hydroxychloroquine for distribution throughout the United States. This is the first time I encountered uh, Mr. Navarro, Dr. Navarro. He's now a friend. Uh, we broadcast together. We've written op-eds together, et cetera. Um, uh, but uh, I first encountered him when he was seeking vendors uh, to produce hydroxychloroquine domestically here in the United States so we would have a sustainable supply. Um, Mr. Rick Bright was forced out of BARDA, then had a whistleblower action against uh, certain people in HHS, and then chose to leave the government. Uh, and. Um, joined the Rockefeller Foundation. And uh, while employed at the Rockefeller Foundation, he gave a, a video interview uh, in which he spoke about hydroxychloroquine. And he said directly that he and Janet Woodcock, who was then char in char had a senior position at the FDA and functionally was in charge of the drugs aspects of Operation Warp Speed, um, he worked, he, he says directly on camera that he worked together with Janet Woodcock to craft a scheme to circumvent the will of the president and make it so that hydroxychloroquine would only be available under emergency use authorization for hospitalized patients, as opposed to use for early treatment, which would have saved enormous numbers of lives. Uh, so that's one example. Clearly, ivermectin was suppressed under the logic that if either ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine were available, then people would be hesitant to take vaccines because they would know that they had a treatment option, okay? Yeah. And so all of the censorship 
and blacklisting and all of that that happened was all justified on the basis that if this information was provided to the general public, they would be less likely to take the vaccine that had been developed by the NIH and by BioNTech, and which uh, we now know was hoped to be safe and effective by Deborah Burks and Rochelle Walensky, but which we now know is neither safe nor effective. It does not prevent, just to put a pin on it on this one, it's, you, can, you can take this to the bank. These vaccines do not prevent, note my words, they do not prevent infection, replication, or spread of the virus. They do not prevent hospitalization from COVID. They do not prevent death from COVID. Data from all over the world show that the more highly vaccinated are more likely to die than those that have developed natural immunity. And the recent Cleveland Clinic data shows unequivocally, the more inoculations you receive, the more likely you are to be hospitalized. So the government, Tony Fauci's current limited hangout, uh, as emphasized in his in, uh, interviews on Morning Joe last uh, Thursday, is that um, unequivocally the data show that these vaccines um, uh, provide some protection against severe disease and death. You have less chance of severe disease and death if you take the vaccine than if you don't take the vaccine. That statement is not consistent with current data. That statement may have been true once upon a time, but it is not true today. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of what you were talking about, some of what you were talking about was well written in Peter Navarro's book in Trump time. Uh, yep. So that, that's a great source for people to read more. Uh, one of the things that he said in the book was that HCQ has safely treated malaria, rheumatoid arthritis, and lupus for more than 60 years. Uh, so it's it's and, well and Iver, ivermectin is so hydroxychloroquine is on the World Health Organization list of essential medicines globally, uh, and ivermectin is widely considered one of the safest drugs in the world. So um, there was uh, multiple tragedies. You, know, you had the the tragedy of of COVID nineteen, um, the response, the the rush vaccines. Uh, the censorship, no, no dissent, no other opinions as far as best treatments. You have motivation uh, to um, incentivize hospitals to prescribe rendisivir, which is highly toxic and not used in much of the world today. Um, discouragement or making it very, very difficult, um, even the loss of potential uh, hospital privileges or licenses to prescribe things that are known to work like HCQ. Um, what, 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 basically, what, what the hell is going on? Is, is there an attempt at this event two, uh, two, 201 uh, to depopulate? You know, if you look at it, you know, there's, there's people in this world that want abortions, they want partial abortions, 
um, uh, Peter Singer, professor at uh, Princeton, you know, doesn't doesn't see a problem with infanticide up to three or four years old. You have baby uh, baby food formulas that are you know not available and risking lives of babies. Uh, you have Trudeau, uh, people like that that are encouraging euthanasia, you know, actually encouraging it by tying euthanasia to organ donation. So now somebody who is sick has, you know, moral issues to deal with, you know, maybe think it's better off that I die, let somebody else live. Uh, you have this whole scenario we've witnessed over the last couple of years with um, uh, COVID-19. Um, you know, is is there a force that wants to depopulate so uh again for me i have to stick with the artifacts what do we actually can we document okay what we can document is a wide range of individuals ranging from bill gates through klaus schwab um to uh um his uh chief science officer uh, to his co-author in the Great Reset book, and many others that absolutely advocate for depopulation. That, that is undeniable. Were the vaccines part of a, a depopulation agenda is where this is going. And that's I can't go there because I don't see any artifacts to support that. I don't see documents to support that. It is a hypothesis. Some might say a conspiracy theory. That's a way of, of casting shade on that theory. Uh, you know, it's a, a use of language to delegitimize any discussion about that. But I think for any a person of integrity who is an independent thinker, you have to entertain the possibility that there are interests and incentives involved here that have previously expressed support for depopulation. That is adequate, that's well documented in, in the uh, available um, receipts and, and literature. So uh, was that the agenda here? Once again, I, I don't have any documents to show that, that, that Klaus Schwab um, conspired, you know, just to take an, an example, uh, with Bill Gates uh, to advance a depopulation agenda. One of the things that you did not touch on in that list of uh, obscenities that have happened over the last three years is that we've also seen the most massive upward transfer of wealth in modern history. That also is a clear artifact that, that is undeniable. And there absolutely have been actions taken which have facilitated that upward transfer of wealth, which have nothing to do with public health, and which virtually every thinking economist will tell you was uh, ill-advised. And yet they advanced the uh, power and wealth of a small, small cadre of individuals that happens to overlap um, significantly with the thousand largest companies and their owners that constitute the World Economic Forum. So, uh, you know, the artifacts we can see is that uh, 
the World Economic Forum and its uh, structural ally, the World Health Organization, and its structural, which WHO is part of the UN, um, all acted in ways that facilitated authoritarian responses, um, uh, censorship, uh, gaslighting, authoritarian uh, control, and uh, massive upwards transfer of wealth and wholesale destruction of small businesses and uh, unnecessary loss of life through the various social distancing, masking, and lockdown policies. The, uh, the excess deaths, depression, suicides, economic damages associated with that triumvirate of unnecessary masking that's completely ineffectual and uh, lockdowns and social distancing policies, including uh, shelter and home, can easily be documented as causing massive excess death, disease, loss of life, disease through failure in screening, uh, in, in routine hospital visits, et cetera. Um, uh, and of course, depression, um, drug abuse, alcohol abuse and so many other things. So um, what, what I think for any thinking person, it's very difficult to rectify, to um, square the circle, to align the fact that the policies that were implemented uh, were not only not useful from a public health standpoint, they were highly counterproductive from a public health standpoint. And so then you're left with the paradox. Is it that these people were acting with nefarious intent or were they just incompetent? And the problem is it's really hard to tell the difference between incompetence and nefarious scheming. Uh, the question that's often asked to me is, Robert, because of you know I wrote the book, uh, Lies My Government Told Me, what do you think happened here? Was there a puppet master? You know, there's there's as as many people as there are building conspiracy hypotheses. There are people that they target uh, for puppet master, right? And we we can go from the Bank of International Settlements uh, all the way down to Tony Fauci and Bill Gates. I mean, there's a whole range of individuals there having to do with international bankers. Um, BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, uh, Tedros, Gabayus, uh, Bill and Bill Gates, uh, a whole bunch of actors that we could all say are potentially the puppet master. Um, my, where I'm at currently can best be described as a Venn diagram. And yes, I'm aware that Kamala Harris loves Venn diagrams. Uh, I wasn't aware when I came up with this. But just go with me for a minute and park whether or not Kamala Harris likes Venn diagrams. If you imagine a circle that describes in failure to think, ignorance and failure to think, okay? And keep in mind that Hannah Arendt, the great 20th century Jewish philosopher who studied basically the mass formation and psychosis that happened during Nazi Germany, 
And she was a concentration camp survivor. She knew well, you know, was coming from that frame of reference. In her book, Eichmann in Jerusalem, covering the trial of Adolf Eichmann, she ascribed the banality of evil to a failure to think. Her observation was that Eichmann, although guilty of some of the most uh, egregious atrocities in the 20th century, was not an intrinsically evil person. He was basically a bureaucrat who sought to advance his own prospects, his own power, his own status within the bureaucracy. That's what he was focused on. Um, and he failed to think or have awareness of the profound evil that he was, he was creating, is her point, okay? So banality of evil is a consequence of failure to think. Then imagine another big circle that's intersecting with this that is uh, nefarious scheming. There's no question that there's a whole lot of people and groups that exploited, as they say, never let a good crisis go to waste that exploited this crisis. And some of them may have been involved in planning before the crisis ever happened about how they could exploit the crisis. I mean, you, can't, you cannot disregard the fact that Bill Gates funded Event 201, that built the, the world's and the government's plans, and then based on basically that insider information, Bill Gates made strategic investments in mRNA technology which yielded him enormous returns on investment. And then he sold those assets as it became clear that the mRNA vaccines were causing problems to great profit, and then came out with a statement that the vaccines were not performing as expected. Okay? Um, you can't, that those artifacts are clear. Okay? So nefarious scheming is absolutely part of this. I think the other big circle intersecting in these three big circles is complex systems. We have a world now of interacting systems that are incredibly complex, and you can't readily predict what's going to happen when they get provoked, when there's a big change or stress on that system. So I think the outcome that we've observed is part in part, an emergent phenomena from complex systems interacting that have been altered, perturbed, part due to nefarious scheming, and part due to failure to think. And at the intersection of all three is the banality of evil. There is no denying that we have experienced profound evil over the last three years. Phenomena. And at the intersection of nefarious scheming and failure to think, what we have is unintended consequences, blowback. At the intersection of failure to think and complex systems, we get arbitrary bureaucracy. There's absolutely a component here of arbitrary bureaucracy. And at the intersection between complex systems and nefarious scheming, what we get is corruption. And there's no question that there is rampant corruption and war profiteering that's gone on here. So that's yeah. my model, is what we have is the interaction of these three major kind of groups of, of activities 
Um, and pretty much I can put, if you name anybody or anything that's happened here, I can put them into one of those three bins and show how they relate to the others. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah it does. And, I, you know, I think there's definitely some degree of evilness uh, to call people a conspiracy theorist because they they introduced the possibility that the COVID-19 virus could have come out of the Wuhan laboratory uh, to to threaten doctors with losing their licenses if they uh don't vaccinate their patients or if they prescribe uh, HCQ. Um, or, or even you know, if they fail to use masks in their clinical practice, that was yeah. also a justification. Yeah. And, you know, somebody like in, in the case of um, the, the lap, uh, Hunter Biden's laptop computer, um, there was coordination between the FBI and social media. There, there's an agent so at the, the Twitter F files clearly document there was interaction between not just FBI, but also CIA and Department of Homeland Security and CDC and a it's like 30 different agencies that were yeah. all acting um, together with social media to circumvent the First Amendment. That is that is clearly documented. Yeah, um, we just just have a couple minutes. Um, you know, you, you mentioned that the Constitution says that uh, rights that are not preserved to, to the federal government should be devolved to the state governments. The Biden administration is going the other way. Uh, they're going to to supranational organizations, the World Health Organization, and basically subrogating our thinking. You said one of the uh, Anna Harent uh, warned us that the big problem is just not thinking, but now we're subrogating all of our thinking for healthcare to the World Health Organization, and that's very scary. They can call anything a pandemic. They can call uh, racism a pandemic. They can call well, environmental yeah, it's, it's, climate it's, change. They it's it's a public health. A uh, threat is what they define. And so, as you point out, gun violence could be a public health threat, abortion could be a public health threat, or lack of abortion, or uh, failure to provide uh, transgender surgery, or whatever it is they want to declare. There is no limits. And we've seen how arbitrary and capricious they can be in the case of monkeypox in which there was one advisory board set up by WHO that, that made a decision after looking at the data that this was not a worldwide health emergency. Then Tedros uh, changed the composition of that committee to make it more friendly, or in his phrase, uh, more representative of the uh, population and the people that were treating that population that were experiencing monkeypox. You catch the subtext there. This is men who have sex with men. Um, and uh, then he re-asked them whether or not this was a global health emergency. They voted nine to six against declaring it a public health emergency. And he determined that that was a tie, nine to six, which he had to break, and then he unilaterally declared it a public health emergency. Now, when's the last time you heard CNN talking about monkeypox? And yet it is still a public health emergency, okay? Um, that shows how arbitrary and capricious this is, and specifically where the rubber hits the road is the international health regulation modifications 
uh, which are currently pending and will be voted on in 2024 that have been advanced by our HHS. And although the current international health regulations are optional, our government proposes they should be mandatory and that WHO be given surveillance powers. In other words, they can place spies and they be given the power enforceable by the World Trade Organization uh, to force independent nation states to comply with whatever practices, which means not only do independent nation that they determine, in other words, they can, the uh, Tedros can say all people in North America must take this vaccine. And under these IHRs, not only would uh, the United States government lose its sovereignty, but you would lose your personal sovereignty. You would not be allowed to uh, have any rights or privileges uh, if you refuse to take the vaccine that Mr. Tedros, a, a avowed Marxist, former terrorist, uh, put in place there by the CCP and Mr. Gates, you would be forced to do whatever Mr. Tedros tells you to do in terms of medical procedures or any other thing that he determines you must do for the sake of whatever public health crisis he determines. And that's the policy that our government, our HHS, our Joe Biden administration has proposed and when it came up for a vote last spring, it was defeated largely by a consortium of African and South and Latin American nations who objected to the loss of national sovereignty. And it's currently now in a reconsideration in committee uh, for voting in uh, 2024. And the uh, it is being preferred uh, not as a treaty, but as an executive agreement, which by the way, is just as binding as treaties. So one of the things that's happened is the executive branch has circumvented the rights of Congress and the right and obligation of Congress to approve treaties by going to executive agreements, uh, such as the Paris Accord, uh, which have the binding force of international law, but don't require approval of Congress. So they bypass Congress by calling them as executive agreements, but they have the full force of a formal treaty. Well, that's uh, very scary. Uh, a lot of things to be concerned about. Well, uh, Dr. Malone, thank you very much for spending this time with us. It was a real honor to have you uh, speak to us and educate us about mRNA technology and um, about the way that the COVID uh, situation was mishandled. Um, so it was very, very informative and uh, very uh, scary in, in, in some regards. But uh, you were very kind with us and uh, very much appreciate you speaking to us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity to speak with you and your audience, and I hope that uh, I was uh, clear and sufficiently concise, but still uh, with enough detail that people can understand the arguments. I think it was perfect. Thank you very much.